Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi Shakoya. I am one of the elders here, and I'll be reading the scripture for this morning. The passage for today is not what's in the bulletin. It's in Ephesians 5. We'll be reading verses 15 through 33, the end of the chapter. This can be found on page 1780 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, starting from verse 15. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. I know for some of you, your worst church nightmare has come true that we're going to spend two weeks on this passage. Um, that's meant somewhat facetiously towards wives. I know that it's somewhat true for some, for some single people or divorcees, and I just want you to know that um, I'm, I'm sorry that's true. Hopefully this will be really applicable to you as well. Um, the reason why I think it's important to spend a little bit more time on this passage, I really would love to spend about five weeks on it, um, is because it is one of the most out of step with the cultural norms that we're commanded to live in as Christians. And whenever um, Scripture teaches us that something is good and something that we should embrace and live in is not just out of step with the non-believing culture in which we're situated, but also among, among uh, organizations that call themselves churches and churches that purport to take the Bible very seriously. And in some ways, I think very genuinely do want to take the Bible very seriously, but out for various reasons, choose to interpret passages that are actually quite straightforward to mean something kind of like the opposite of what they plainly say um, and pur- 
and put that forward to the Christian public and unbelieving public as faithfulness um, can be very confusing to Christ's sheep, to us. And I think it's really important sometimes for us to just be very focused and clear about what Scripture says and doesn't say and what that means for us before we even figure out how we're going to obey it. And this is one of those passages. And um, so I, th- I think it behooves us to look at it a little bit more. Um, one of the things um, about this passage is, is that when most people preach about it, either they'll start in verse 21 or verse 22. I had Femi start in verse 15 for a very specific reason, because I wanted him to read verse 18, moving into the rest of the passage. Why? Right? I mean, the NIV translation clearly puts like a, a chapter marker thing before verse 21 or 22, signaling to us that it's a completely different passage, right? And the reason why it's important is because I think it's important to recognize that um, this statement about how we should all relate to each other versus 21 and following into the middle of chapter 6 is actually part of his command for us to be filled with the Spirit. Okay? And so therefore, not only is making music with our mouths to the Lord and giving ourselves devotionally and emotionally to God by singing in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs and encouraging one another verbally, right? Because think about this. How many times have you heard the verse, if you've been a Christian for a while, don't be, don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And then people just stop there. And then they say, now what does being filled with the Spirit mean? And then they tell you something that has nothing to do with the verses that immediately follow verse 18. Paul explicitly tells us in the most concrete possible language, in very unmystical terms, exactly what it would look like for somebody who believes in Christ to be filled with the Spirit, and for a group of people who believe in Christ to be filled with the Spirit. One, you use your mouth to move your heart to give your full devotion to God in your heart and verbally in front of everybody else artistically so that everybody as much as possible is drawn into a heart-filled devotion and desire to love Jesus with all their heart. Right? We call that worship. Right? You worship God and you bring other people into worship and you make it as creative and engaging as possible and you give yourself to it and you pray and you do it together and you do it alone and you do it until you have stoked a real spiritual fervor in your heart for God. That's one step of being filled with the Spirit. And then the second step he gives us to be filled with the Spirit is, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is, the relationships of authority and submission and the interpersonal relationships that make up human society so that it has structures of productivity and protection so that we can flourish together, those relationships have to have harmony in them. Those relationships have to be vibrant and loving. The dynamics of them should always be getting better. And therefore, knowing what authorities you're related to and submitting to them rightly and having that dynamic is fundamental to being filled with the Spirit. And then thirdly, he says, now, you're also in a spiritual battle, and you're going to have to put on the full armor of God in order to stand against everything that stands against you. And so the whole section in chapter 6 about the armor of God is the third major example about how to be filled with the Spirit. If you want to know how to be filled with the Spirit, according to Ephesians 5 and 6, it's those three things mainly. Worship alone and together with everything that you have, using your voice and your heart, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and putting on the full armor of God. 
You do those things to be filled with the Spirit, right? You can see this in the way the passage plays out. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then there's two major imperatives. Speak to, another, to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then there's some sub-commandments related to doing that. And then he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then there's a bunch of sub-commandments related to husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. We'll talk about children and parents and slaves and masters the next two weeks. So what is being discussed in verses 21 to 33 about husbands and wives? I want you to understand is fundamental to being filled with the Spirit. I'm not saying that if you don't want to do the role of a husband or the role of a wife in these verses that you can't have the Holy Spirit operating in your life at all. I'm not saying that, okay? What I am saying, though, is that if you want to be filled with the Spirit and have the Spirit doing what He wants to do in your life and to have His full transformative operation in your life, this is not—this whole thing about husbands and wives is not peripheral. It's not elective. It's not off to the side. It is— Front and center, fundamental to how you live your life every single day. Does that make sense? And now, if you're not married, this is true of every headship helper relationship that you're involved with. Citizen government, boss employee, right? There are lots of—almost every relationship, somebody has the lead and somebody's helping. And the helper is needed to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And we're all in lots of relationships that we might not like to think of as hierarchical relationships, but they are. The relationships either where you're either taking the lead or you're not taking the lead. Whenever any two people come together to accomplish virtually anything, somebody takes the lead and somebody lets them and helps. That is always—not maybe not 100 percent always—virtually always the most productive functional and protective means by which to accomplish the most towards human flourishing in every relationship, regardless of gender. This one just specifically refers to the marriage relationship. Okay. There's a couple things I want to do this morning in the next 160 minutes, okay? The first is—just <laughs> kidding. Um, the first is I want to look at the, the big picture theologically. What is this passage telling us about God and us? Two, I want to look at it a little bit close syntactically because— there's a lot of things people say this passage says that it doesn't say, and if you just paid attention to the conjunctions and the prepositions and the words that are actually in the passage, you wouldn't be drawn away to that stuff, even though we emotionally want to be. And thirdly, I want to try to really apply it in a bunch of ways. Okay, so let's try to get through this. So the, the first thing, um, the, the, the big theological picture of this passage is really not mainly about husbands and wives, but about that Christ— and his body, the church, are the focal point of this because they have been the focal point of Ephesians 1 through 5, okay? So you may have not been with us for the last however many weeks we've been in Ephesians, but as you work through the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians talks the most about the church or everybody who believes in Jesus being a body or a family together, bound together with like sinews and tendons, like in this very intricate single family that makes up this body. And Jesus the Christ is the head of that body, and it makes up this spiritually functioning organism for the redemption of the world. And Christ is the head, and we together, the church, are the body. Okay, and that metaphor then is carried forward into these relationship-based contexts. And so the main theological point remains the issue of Christ and his church. One of the reasons why I'm emphasizing this is because for people who are single or not old enough yet to get married or divorcees or just you're not 
you're, you're not a husband or a wife right now. The main air that this passage is breathing is the fundamental truth that we are the body of Christ and Christ is the head and we are the church, right? Now, though, I want to go through this in a way, but I want to, I want to tell you about a couple of things. So in my opinion, my opinion, the best single resource um, that there is right now on what the Bible teaches about men and women is this book by Claire Smith called God's Good Design. She's an Anglican scholar um, at Sydney Hall in Australia. So she writes kind of British, so it's like refreshingly straightforward. And she's a really good scholar. There's a lot of women who actually want to hear from a woman on this. They don't really want to hear from a man. I, you can say what you want about that. That's how they feel. So she's a woman, turns out. And also, one of the things I really like about Claire Smith is she doesn't pretend that these passages are really difficult. Because a lot of scholars, even complementarian scholars, scholars who take the scriptures for what they say about men and women in relationship to these things, will often give a lot of credence to the arguments that say, well, it probably doesn't mean that. And they're like, oh, these are very good scholarly arguments. And, but I think on balance, it's probably better to understand it this way. Claire Smith doesn't do that. She's far too in the British mold for that. And she's just like, they're not hard to understand. They're actually incredibly straightforward. And then she, but she goes through all the counterarguments and explains that. So she's good. If you don't want to read, if you're American and you don't think it's a fate worse—if you think it's a fate worse than death to read more than 50 pages, then Kathy Keller's little book, um, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, is very good. But it, it doesn't go over a lot of the arguments that you'll hear when people explain these passages away. And Claire Smith does a really good job with that. Now, Claire Smith's outline in chapter 5, where she talks about Ephesians 5, says that this is the main summary, right? One, Christ is the head of his church. He is the head, the one who is in authority over the church, and therefore the church is subject to Christ. It is rightly in submission to Christ because it is subject to Christ. And third, Christ loves his church, right? It says that Jesus laid down his life for the church— and he did it so that she would be cleansed of any blemish, any imperfection, so that she would sparkle, so that she would be her full and perfect self. So when she is everything she can be, he can give her to himself and they can enjoy each other forever. And so what Claire Smith points out is he says, in this context, understanding it that way, Everything Christ does, he does for himself. And everything he does, he does for his bride. And the two are—because because what he wants in the end is a perfect bride. Not a bride that is so stressed by living up to her husband's requirements that she's so broken by her desire for his approval that she can hardly breathe. No, no, no. A woman who—instead, it's a, the picture of a woman who is so flowered in the nurturing of the one who loves her that she has become everything that she can be for her own joy, in her own completion, in her own fulfillment, in her own creative purpose. And when she has grown up into everything that she can be, she is everything she could ever be for her husband, and he receives and enjoys that with joy forever. It's exactly the opposite of the condescending, controlling husband who feels bigger when his wife is less. It is instead the picture of the fully secure husband who enjoys his wife all the more when she is everything that she can be and is. Does that make sense? And Claire Smith says, that is the point. And therefore, okay, here's the problem. Here's the problem if you're single and listening to this. The problem is the sermon does apply to you because the, the first and most important question before we talk about husbands and wives is this. 
The, the main question this passage is not, is your husband your head? The main question is, for all of you, men and women, is Christ your head? Or isn't he? That's the big question. That's the big overarching theme of the book of Ephesians, that he's not just the Savior. He's not just your special friend. We are a, a cosmic interwoven body for the redemption of the world and the glory of God. We are that body together and only together, and Christ, the risen Lord, is himself the head, the ruler, that one which we are rightly subject to, making us a spotless bride for himself. He is the head. Is he your head? Would he know that? Do you behave that way? Do you live, regardless of how you live towards your husband or wife or anybody else, is he the one you are subject to in your heart, in everything, knowing that everything he does is for your flourishing? Because he wants to give the full you to himself forever. I mean, I, I mean I'm not going to stop the sermon right there, but like, we could stop right there, and we'd have plenty to think about this week, I think. The, the whole issue about husbands and wives is fundamentally secondary to that. If that, you get that right, the husband's wife thing basically solves itself. If you don't get that right, it doesn't matter what I say from here. It's not going to work. Okay. Secondly, a closer syntactical reading. A number of the things that are said about this passage can't be right on the basis of what the text itself says if we pay attention to the details of what's actually written. So let me go over four. Hopefully this will be helpful for you. Claire Smith goes over some of these and more in her book. The first is, one of the things that this passage can't mean is what's sometimes called mutual submission, which is this. Verse 21 says, right, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? And that's the first verse. And then it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then it says, children, submit to your parents. And then it says, right? And so it says, submit to one another. So if we would just obey verse 21, the rest of the verses wouldn't really matter. Sure, Paul puts them in there because generally speaking, in the first century, it's a hierarchical world, and, you know, people have to generally ascribe to these as they become more free in Christ. But the real culturally cataclysmic idea is that we're supposed to submit to one another. Now, the, the most dangerous thing about that idea is that it is kind of half right. Like, if you read the whole Bible and about the harmony of human beings and how we're supposed to love and serve each other, it's absolutely true that in many contexts we should be submitting to one another, and people who are lower in some kind of hierarchy or who have less authority should be listened to, and we should do what they say, even if they're not the one with the most power, right? Like, when you guys aren't here, I'm the boss at High Point, right? And we, I have staff people on my team that hierarchically I have more authority than, and it's their job to submit to me, right? But tons of times they have better ideas, and I'm like, okay, we should do what you say, because— their idea is better, right? But that's kind of irrelevant to the argument the apostle is actually making, right? For a couple of reasons. The first, first thing to notice is that in none of the examples of the relationships that he talks about are the relationships egalitarian or interchangeable. None of them, okay? The most important one is the relationship of Christ to the church. Jesus does not submit to the church <laughs> at all. The church is subject to Christ, and the church submits to Christ. Secondly, children of parents, ch parents don't submit to their children. Children submit to their parents. That's the way that's supposed to go. And um, in hierarchical relationships of employment, especially in house servitude in the first century, that it was also true that 
Masters didn't submit to servants. Servants submitted to masters. That's how that works, right? And what's also important to recognize is that in verse 21, in the original language, the verb is supplied. So it literally says, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the next verse, there's no verb. It just says, wives to husbands as to the Lord. And the, the reason you do that in the Greek language is because you, you, you allow the verb to be automatically supplied because it's a subset of the thing you just argued. So, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means wives submit to your husbands. That's what it means in the marriage relationship. What um, a number of New Testament scholars have noted is that this is what's called in the ancient world a household code. That there's a general statement made, and then he goes through the, the important categories and says, you have to submit to one another. Here's what I mean. Wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. Does that make sense? It just doesn't mean, verse 21 just doesn't mean that. And the, the problem with that interpretation is we all want it to mean that. Like every American who's grown up in a post-feminist culture, which is a lot of us, like anybody other than about 65 probably, like wants it to basically mean that. They, we want it to say, well, you know, maybe there's some deference wives give to husbands, but for God's sakes, it can't be very much. And so verse 21 probably nullifies 87.4% of the whole submission thing, right? At least. And it just, it doesn't mean that at all. It's really just a it's a, um, it's a beginning statement that he works out through the rest of the verses. And if we pay attention carefully to the context, what the words mean and how they function, we'd know that. The reason we don't know that is because we don't want it to mean that, right? The second thing is that it can't mean is that um, the statement about submission is much worse than you would think because the parallels are comprehensive. Here's what I mean by that. Um, the parallel between Christ and his church and the husband and the wife are absolute. They're not relative. If you look, for example, at the conjunctions that are used, they're all as, just as, just as also, and thus. That is, that the relationship between A and B in the comparison is absolute. Now, obviously, there are some, there are some ways in which the husband is not absolutely like Christ, just as the wife is not absolutely like the church, right? But for the purposes of the parallel and the comparison, they're absolute. That is, that the church is absolutely subject to Christ, and relative to that in parallelism, what the text is saying, the wife absolutely subject to her husband. That's what the text says. I realize that's probably the most uncomfortable thing I've said so far. May not be the most in the whole sermon. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, but, but, but here's the thing. I think one of the most important things that faith has to mean if we turn to the scriptures, is that we have to start by being honest. You just, you have to start by being honest. That's what the text says. In relationship to headship and helpership, of leadership and submission, the relationship between Christ and his church and the husband and wife is absolutely parallel, okay? Now the reason it's parallel is for the third point, which is the comprehensive parallel is also a mystery, a mystery in its union, of union, right? So in the first half, so the, the metaphor through the whole passage is Christ is the head and the church is the body. That's the metaphor through the whole thing. Now, for women, the lesson Paul is bringing out for wives is this. Well, if Christ is the head and the, the body is, the church is the body, the relationship of authority and submission is absolute. So wives, that's the lesson for you. Now, the lesson for husbands, it's in the same metaphor, but it's a completely different lesson, right? 
So what Paul is saying to husbands is, if the French Revolution has taught us anything, it's that in order for the head to lead the body, it has to be attached. Right? But if, but like, but if, (laughs) that was pretty good, right? But if, right, if the head is attached to the body, then what does that mean? It means it's one body, right? But like, by definition, like if your head is attached to your body, you don't have a head and a body, you've just got a body. That's all you've got. You've got a body. And, and so the, the point for the husband is like, listen, if you're uh, the head and she's the body in this metaphor, and you're attached, that is that you can have authority because your head is attached to the body, what it also means is that you're one body. There's no differentiation between you at all. Okay? And so anything you do to your wife, or any extension of your wife, you are doing to yourself. There is no such thing as you and your wife. There is just the two of you, right? Now, why is that a profound mystery? Okay, it's a mysterion megas. It's a mega mystery, right? It's because it's three mysteries, right? It's first, it is the, the, and the greater mystery is, it's that that's true about us in Christ. Think about that. That's true about us in Christ. There is no distinction between the head and the body. If the head is the ruler over the body, us the church, then the head is attached to the body, and we are attached to the head, and we are one with him. And that means anything he does to himself, he does to us. And everything he does to us, he's doing for himself. And he treats us like his own self, his own body. He cares for and nurtures us and protects us and is interested in our future and who we are that much. That is a—we don't know exactly how that functions. We're told that it is true, and it is a mystery, right? And then the second mystery is— that that's supposed to be true. In some ways, it is true of every husband and wife. They're one body, right? The way he signals this in the text, and the NIV doesn't do a very good job with this, is if you look at verse—if you got your Bible open there, you can look at verse 28. Okay, in the same way—see that, like, that conjunction stuff, point to, right? In this, in this same way, husbands ought—that word is technically O. Because ought can be like, you probably should, right? O is like, no, you owe me $20,000, it's time to pay up, right? Like, it, it, that's literally the word it uses for husbands. It says, and say we husbands owe love to their wives, their own wives, as they owe love to their own bodies, okay? Now, the, the word used there for own bodies is somata. It's the generic Greek word for body, physical body, okay? Then he says, he who loves his wife loves himself, verse 29. After all, no one ever hated his own body. Okay, now in that situation, they translate it in English body, but the word behind that is the word sarx in Greek, which is, means flesh more literally. Now in most cases in the New Testament, when the word sarx is used, it's referring to the sinful nature, like that part of you that's part of your fleshliness that's like really selfish and really visceral and wants to do whatever you want and act like an animal and, you know, morality and truth be damned kind of thing, that part of you, but not here. Well, here he's basically talking about your physical body. Like he's saying, like, look, you get up and you eat because you care for your body. But there he means it kind of literally, so he uses the word flesh, okay? Now, the reason that's important is that the next two times he uses the word somata for body, but when he gets to Genesis 2 and he quotes it, you see, 
what Genesis 2 says, the two will become one what? One flesh. See, the reason he uses the word sarks up above, everybody nurtures his own sarks, his own flesh, in the context of three other uses of the word body, is we're supposed to see that those words are being used in parallel. Somata, sarks, somata, somata, it's all body, right? It, it means a oneness of body, right? And so then when he says, listen, that's why it says in Genesis that for this reason, that is the reason of marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's like, think about that. That doesn't mean the flesh. It doesn't mean the sinful nature. It means the flesh, the body. That, that like, they become one. You don't know what that means. Don't pretend you know what that means. Right? You don't know what it means. You know something about what it's got to mean. You know something like what it ought to look like. And how you ought to treat each other. You know that. Like, intuitively, evocatively, you know it. But you don't know what it means. You don't know how, how metaphysically you've become one. It's a mystery. Right? That's the second mystery. It's a mystery. And then there's a third mystery. The third mystery is that the one mirrors the other. The third mystery is the mystery of the fact that Christ is the head of his body. And that we are one with him in head and body. And the second mystery, that the husband and wife, when they come together, are somehow, they become one body. They become one, right? That's a mystery. And then, these two are in some ways theologically interchangeable and reflective of each other. It is a third mystery. It is a mysterion mega. It is a very big mystery, right? And here's the important thing. The size of the mystery is meant to put its claim on the emotion of the husband. That's the point. Do you understand? That if you understand how big the mystery is, that is supposed to then come—and it's true for the wife, too. But contextually, it's closer to the discussion about the husband, okay? He, he says, don't you see all this mystery working together— you have to do your part. You have to be one with your wife. Because that's itself a mystery. The greatest mystery in the universe is Christ being one with the church. And those two mysteries are inter-involved. And you are mirroring it. Right? And then the last thing about what it can and can't mean is the, the last verse says, and the wife must, the, the husband must love his wife, and the wife must respect her husband. The reason why that's important is because the word respect means different things to different people. <laughs> I mean, have you ever asked a really rebellious teenager if they respect their parents? Right? They'll be like, yeah, I respect my parents. Uh, they don't know that, you know? Like, it, it can mean a lot of different things. And so when you say a wife must respect her husband, and if that is Paul's summary of verses 21 to 32, it's very easy to say, for all this submission, blah, 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 talk in verses 21 to 32, all it really means is husbands should love their wives and wives should respect their husbands. That's all it means. It doesn't mean submission or whatever. That's just a metaphor for the fact that wives should respect their husbands. Well, not really. Not really. Um, the word translated respect there is the word phobos, or the word where we get phobia or fear. It, it, it literally says wives should fear their husbands, or wives must fear their husbands. 
Um, it's the same word often used in relationship to how we should think about God. But, you know, we often say, well, you know, when the Bible says fear God, it doesn't literally mean be afraid of him. It means, like, really respect or revere him, right? Which is right. And if you say, well, Nick, is there—you probably wouldn't ask this question, but if we were doing a New Testament exegesis seminar, you would. You, you say, well, Nick, is there a Greek word that just generically means respect and doesn't mean fear or anything else? Like, could the apostle have used a generic word— Right? Because if there isn't a generic word, then maybe this is that he does just mean respect, right? And the answer is, that's a good question. There actually isn't. There actually isn't a Greek word used in the New Testament, at least, or in the whole Bible, um, that is, that it just means respect generically, okay? However, there are lots of other words that can be translated respect. They just all take another connotation with them. Here, let me give you an example. So in 1 Peter 3, 7, if you're going to be looking at this passage carefully in your small group, you might want to look at the First Peter 3 passage too, because it's Peter saying the same thing in different words. It says in verse 7, and this is a literal translation I'm going to give you right now. Husbands, live with your wives in understanding, recognizing them as the weaker vessel, as the woman, ascribing to them respect— as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that no, nothing will hinder your prayers. Respect. So it literally says in the Bible too, well, husbands, respect your wives, right? Okay. The word used there is um, timeon, which is where we get the word timothy or honored one, right? And so the, the, that whole time word group t is, can be translated respect, but its, its auxiliary meaning is honor, meaning— that the person you're talking to deserves respect because they have an inherent dignity that should cause you to honor them even though they can't enforce it on you. Right? Um, the Thaumazo word group is like that too. Like there's this place where it says, this group of people is so evil because there is no wonder before the old or mercy for the young. That word wonder, Thaumazo, it, it means basically like when you see an old person— and you're like a good person, okay, in the generic sense. Like you're among the righteous in the scriptures, right? Like what feeling should you have when you interact with somebody who is like honest to God old? And like even frail old, right? See, so, so like for a lot of people, for bad people like us, it's like impatience, right? It's like, would you please pull over? Or would you, like, like what's going on here, right? But the human emotion for a heart that is connected to their humanity is wonder, right? Like, this person has lived a lot longer than you, okay? Like, you were in diapers when they were voting for presidents. Like, you have no idea what they've been through, how they've lived, and you don't understand the respect that they might deserve. Like, you can be, like, basically being annoyed at somebody that has done something so heroic, you haven't even watched a movie about it yet. Like, like when, when you see an old person, your default ought to be, like— Wow. Right? Just like your attitude towards a young person ought to be mercy. Right? That includes—that means old people too, your attitude. <laughs> right? So what Peter is saying to husbands is actually not the same thing Paul is saying to husbands. Right? What Peter is saying is saying, listen, there are ways in which God has made your wife— the, quote, weaker vessel. That's, in the new, in the NIV that you're holding, it translates it weaker partner, which I do not like that translation. Because that could mean a full partner who is in some sense weaker, or it could mean weaker in the partnership. 
And I don't like that ambiguity. She's not a weaker partner. She's a weaker vessel, meaning that the container, like the way she holds her part in this is more breakable. And therefore, you, you can't be harsh with her, right? So for example, like on, on average, women are considerably more sensitive than men, right? So I'm, there's probably some women thinking like, I'm not more sensitive, and that's why you're thinking that, okay? So <laughs> now— that, that's not true across the board. I'm sure there's couples in here where the, the man is more sensitive than the woman, right? Okay, but sensitivity is a two-edged sword, right? I know this because only in like the last five years have I been able to accept that I'm a really sensitive person, okay? And it's a real problem, okay? Because it's very easy to feel stressed or anxious. It's easy to feel vulnerable and all kinds of things like that. But, but the positive of it is you know things that nobody else knows because your antenna are like— everywhere. Like, you're like, this could go wrong, and what's going on with that person? And you can see a feeling in that person. You have a much greater sense of empathy. You just—like, I've literally had people ask me if I have a prophetic gift. I don't have a prophetic gift. I just pay attention to people, sort of. My wife might disagree about some things, but like, generally speaking, like, I'm just—like, I'm attuned, but the, the problem is, is that it's really easy to overload my circuits and for me to feel negative things because of that, right? And women tend to be disproportionately more like that. But that's—that's that's good. That's, that's really good. But what it means is you shouldn't be harsh with the censors because you'll break and overload them and then they don't do their job right, right? And so what the apostle is saying to the husbands is like, listen, don't be harsh with your wife and you need to live with them according to understanding as the weaker vessel. That is, you need to understand the differences of femininity and you need to understand the importance of it and that God has made them that way and it's for your good. And even if you don't understand all that, you can start with this, right? That as a co-heir of the grace of life, they have a dignity that you must honor. Therefore, you must respect them. Does that make sense? That's, that's not the exact same meaning as what the apostle says, that the, that the wife must fear or revere her husband. That is, that she should relate to him in a relationship of acknowledging his authority— in how she respects him. That's what it means. The same thing it means to fear God, right? It doesn't mean you're terrified of God. It's that you have grounded in your heart a sense of his absolute authority over you and his right to be your ruler. And therefore, the way you acknowledge his authority is a way in which you revere him. Okay, now, yes, there are probably some percentage differences about how much you should revere your husband and revere God. But the point is, is that reverence is either there or it's not on one level. Like, it's, it's binary and percentage, right? So like, on some level, when it comes to something like authority and submission, there's a sense in which it's binary. It's either there or it's not. And what I've seen operating in a lot of Christian families and families in general is that there's a lot of resentment that builds up because the woman is thinking like in terms of percentages, like I'm, I'm 24% submissive or 63% submissive. And the husband recognizes that at the end of the day, it's less than the middle to make it binarily operative you're not submissive enough to ever submit. <laughs> like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in counseling sessions where the wife's like, I'm a good Christian wife, and I believe in Ephesians 5, and I submit to my husband. And he goes, sweetie, you say that. I've heard you say that, like in Bible studies and stuff. You've never been so submissive that I can remember as to ever have submitted <laughs> to me. <laughs> okay, let's keep moving. So don't let the word respect in the translation— undermine what the rest of the text says. It doesn't, if you understand it in its context. Okay, so let's do some applications, okay? 
And I just want to know, I'm going to talk about exceptions to these commands last. So if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get there. Okay, so sorry. All right. The first is just for everybody. Embrace Jesus more as your living head. Doesn't matter what your marital status is. Doesn't matter. None of that matters. This is the only application. This is the effective application. If you do this one, everything else works. You don't do this one, nothing works. Okay? Do you and will you more and more embrace Jesus as your living head, right? That's what the card, the application card to take with you today says. Without reference to husbands or wives, how would you answer this question? Do you submit to Christ in everything? And if not, why not? That's by far the most important question, okay? Do that. He is the living head who loves his bride and does everything for her good and flourishing. Okay. Secondly, um, Living in profound harmony takes maturity and strength. Whatever your authority response relationships, they, the more, what they need more than anything is your growth in godliness. So whether you're talking about your student-professor relationships, your boss-employee relationship, your husband-wife relationship, your—like any relationship you're in, whether you have authority or whether you're head or helper, authority or submissive in the relationship, every single relationship, what it mainly needs is your godliness. Okay, th- think about it. Think about it in the most secular perspective you can for just a second. What happens when couples who are having a problem in their marriage go to a marriage counselor? What happens? They go for the first visit and they yell at each other and the marriage counselor goes, oh, this is good. You came for marriage counseling. By the end of the second visit, what do they always say? Okay, there's, there's some sentence like this. Okay, if you go to marriage counseling, that's what you're going to hear the second session or the third session, depending on how many copays you can pay. Um, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, they'll say something like this. And this is correct. This is counselors being wise. They'll say, listen— I notice there's some dynamics in your relationship that are unhelpful, and we can really work on those. And I'd like to meet with you together to work on those dynamics. And then what does it, it say next? But I fear in order to make real progress, I'm going to have to meet with— and then they'll say either one or both spouses individually, right? That's what they always say. They always, if you don't know that, that's what they always say, right? And it's, it's really not just to make money. It's not like, you know, if I split them up and charge them $150, it's not really that. It's that— the reason why they can't help you is because you're the, pro- like, you're the problem. Like, there's a problem with you individually, right? And then when your problems and the other person's problems come together, you get these really unhelpful dynamics. And so the counselor can be like, well, we can talk about the dynamics, but it's actually never going to get better until you change. Right? Like, so, until you overcome the hurts from your childhood. Until you understand how your relationship with your parents are getting brought into your relationship. Until you realize that you don't trust your spouse. Until you realize, until, until you change. Until you grow. Until you heal. Until you deal with your stuff. That he, she can't fix your relationship. Right? That's true without a counselor also. With just the Holy Spirit as the counselor. When the Holy Spirit is the counselor, and he's counseling you, that's what he's going to say. Like, if you're like, God, can you help my marriage? If you really—if God brings up in your consciousness what he—the way he wants to fix your marriage, it's going to sound like something like this. You need to repent of blah, 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 blah. You still haven't gotten over this. You haven't forgiven so-and-so for such and such. You still are angry at your mom. You—like, it'll be like—it'll be you. You will be the person who is being talked about. And if your spouse is praying— for your relationship to be healed and the Holy Spirit counselor is in the room, what that person is going to intuitively recognize or, or understand as they study the Bible or in their reflection and meditation, the same thing's going to happen to them. God's going to be like, we need to work on you. The main thing your relationship needs or will need in the future or whatever is your godliness. 
okay? And that's true of every relationship that you have, not least husbands and wives, okay? Third is, every robust system is susceptible to corruption. Rejecting the system for anarchy or tyranny is not the answer, okay? As I said before, in basically every way human beings engage protectively and productively with each other for their flourishing creates some kind of organization. In every kind of organization, there is some kind of hierarchy. Listen, I know there are lots of studies and theories, things that say like no hierarchy is better. Just go find a business for me that functions that way. Just one. Go find one business anywhere in the world that has to survive by actually making a profit that functions that way. You're not going to find one. I'm just going to save you like 50 years of searching. There is no such thing as a human organization that accomplishes anything for human flourishing that is not hierarchical, okay? Because somebody has to take the lead and somebody has to—otherwise you just never get anywhere. Do you understand? And so because of that, all human flourishing is dependent on organization, and that organization has hierarchy in it. Every hierarchy can become corrupt no matter what it is, and is prone to corruption, and therefore it's terrifying to participate in any organization. It's one of the reasons why young people don't want to join anything, right? They're like, I'm not joining those people are corrupt. They are corrupt, and all their organizations are corrupt, and there is systemic corruption. And yet, some of these extremely systemically corrupt organizations are producing way more human goods than all of the legions of people that don't want to join anything. Because you just have to have organization to accomplish things. And so as a husband or wife, a man or a woman, you can't be like, well, I'm not submitting to my husband because that is a hierarchical relationship and they all go wrong. It's going to be so terrible. Well, the problem is, is that you walk away from God's design for that and you enter into anarchy, which ends up being chaos and desolation, which then you look to anybody who will support you, and then what you get is tyranny. What needs to happen in every system of organization, whether marriage or any other kind, is— You have to be the sort of person that brings reform constantly. You have to become morally and spiritually strong enough to take the stewardship of the trust of authority given you or the responsibility and duty of submission given to you and to do it in an uncorrupt way. Constantly suspecting yourself of increased corruption and constantly remembering that reform must happen. And the only way I know of to do that is to always think about the responsibility and the trust before you think about the authority. Right, when I first came here, this, this guy named Eldon Harms gave me a, um, an alpaca shepherd's crook as a gift. It's like a hundred dollar piece of wood. But he gave it to me because he said, I want you, no matter what happens, I want you to remember that this is what you are, not anything else. If you pray at the Capitol, or if you meet with business people, or if you, like, get invited to something where people treat you like you're important, where people act like they believe in your ideas, or a lot of people come and listen to you preach. Listen, no matter how many degrees you get, no matter what you do, no matter how respected you think you are, at the end of the day, this is all you're ever going to be. You simply exist to protect and care for Christ's sheep and to find his lost ones. You can never be anything but that. Everything else just serves that, right? And what, I mean, I joke about the fact we're like, I, like I'm preaching about this two weeks in a row. I'd love to do it five weeks in a row just to like shrink the church. But people are like, why do you, how are you constantly, you're like the only pastor I know trying to shrink your church. I was like, listen, part of the reason for that is because every person who shows up is not another mark in my dignity or like my success. Every person who shows up is more responsibility. Every person 
is one of the, these God-loved sheep who he adores, who he wants to see flourish, and he wants to see protected and provided for, and a good example for it. Like, every single person is another hundred pounds on my spiritual back because Jesus has made me a shepherd. Like, I don't understand any pastor who wants a large church. It's insane. Right? And like, if as a husband, you think that way. And as a wife, you think that way. Or as a boss, you think that way. Or as a professor or a student, you think that way. That like, everybody who has authority, man, that's not easy. Yes, they make more money than me. It's because they're going to die seven years earlier than me. Because of all the stress. Right? Like, and then like, they, they're staying up at night when I get to go out on the town with my friends. That's the difference. The people who have responsibility, yeah, a lot of them are corrupt. It's very corrupting. That's completely true. Okay? But it is an enormous weight that you don't want. If you were to think about the responsibility before the authority, you would not want most authorities. So one of the reasons why we shouldn't treat, like, even politicians, much less police and teachers and principals and administrators, the way we treat them. I was at a meeting this week that was talking about, like, what do we want in the new Madison Metropolitan School District superintendent, right? And there was, like, all this list of, like, all the perfections this person would have to have. And I, you know what I said at the end of the meeting? I said, listen, to the consultants looking for the— I said, listen, you need to tell this person— that no salary is worth being the superintendent of the Madison Metropolitan School District. <laughs> Nothing is worth that job because of the way we will treat them at, as a city. We will treat them like they are on the bottom of our shoe, like nothing they can do is right, and all, everything they do is either financially incompetent if you're conservative or fundamentally racist if you're liberal, and like there's no way for you to win. And you need to tell that person that because if they come here, they better be like Saint Benedict or some kind of monk or somebody who wants to die or like they have a martyr complex. Like you need to find that person for us, right? And it's, I, I think that that's true. And so like if you realize that, it will keep you grounded in every authority or submission of your life. Okay, I gotta keep moving. Sorry. Fourth is, okay, I'm, man, I'm out of time here. Fear is our greatest obstacle to living out being a household well. And first Peter, Peter says to the women, he's like, listen, um, the women of old used to put their hope in God, and you will be like them if you do what is right and you don't give way to fear, right? That's true for both men and women. If men look at the responsibility of a husband— and women look at the fear of what could happen if their husband does not fulfill his role properly, the thing that will destroy the natural oneness and union of the marriage and its capacity mysteriously to point to Christ as the head is fear. And you have to be, have courage. You have to, you have to overcome the fear. I gotta keep moving. I'm sorry. Neither the taking of leadership nor the giving of submission are conditional requirements. They're self-imposed disciplines. So, for example, there's, there's nothing that says, if your husband is good enough, you should submit to him. Or, if your wife submits to you, then you should offer her good leadership and loving leadership. These are—there's—so, for example, in the ancient world, the household tables of the ancient world said to the husband, you are in charge, you are the head, everybody should obey you in your household. And if they don't, you can do whatever is necessary in order to achieve their submission, okay? Including killing your children and even your wife, okay? That is one of the things that's completely missing from this passage. He says, wives, you choose to submit to your husbands. Husbands, you choose to love your wives. There is no cross-recourse at all between husbands and wives to force the other person to do what they should and must. Either the person will subject themselves to Christ or they won't. In Christ, the only recourse that you have is the local church is the spiritual shepherding of the local church and the elders who cannot coerce your husband or wife either. 
We can encourage them. We can even invoke church discipline, and we can kick them out of the church, demonstrating publicly that they are not subject to Christ, either woman or man. But that's all we can do. We can't lay a finger on them, and nor should we. Right? <clears throat> There's no biblical recourse for a man or woman. Oh, that's the second part of that. So it's self-imposed, and there is no recourse. Does that make sense? It says, for example, for example, abuse is pretty much out when the Bible says, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Or in Peter 3, 7, be considerate as you live with your wives. So any forcefulness that a husband could use to try to hurt his wife in any means to submit to him is completely outlawed. It has to be a fundamental choice of your wife. So as a husband, if you want your wife to submit to you, and she's a believer, like, all you guys, honey, you ain't got no vinegar, man. Like, you, you just have to try to live more, in a more beautifully masculine way that is for her nurturing and good until she recognizes it. That's the only thing you got. And if you use something else, you're not doing what you're to do. You're not embodying the mystery. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, a couple things on the limits of these commands. He'd be like, let's do it for everything. Okay. For men, the limit on the command is <clears throat> loving your wife doesn't mean appeasing her or living up to her like completely ridiculous expectations. Okay. It, it does not mean providing a car with leather seats and like a moonroof and all the little things she wants and to eat out three nights a week and for her to spend money like a twit and to do whatever she wants. Okay. That's not what it means. And if she tells you you're like an inferior husband, you're not a good enough man because you don't do the blah, 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 she's just being immature and immoral, okay? Your responsibility is to act in every way you can for her fundamental and complete spiritual and moral well-being. So she can become everything so that she can be as a human. So your sacrifice and your care for her is towards her moral good, her spiritual flourishing, and relative to that, her physical needs. Right? But remember the Bible says if you have food and clothing, you should be content with that. For pursuing money just for gain will wear you out and fill you with many evils. Okay? So, men, that's the limit on how you can be attacked in relation to are you really loving your wife? Okay? If your wife is being that way, you are not not fulfilling this if you are giving yourself sacrificially to her holistic, spiritual, and moral good. Okay? Now, for women, um, sub there is no point where you go like, I don't have to submit anymore. That's not how it works. What happens is the object of your submission changes. Who is the higher authority than your husband, right? The head of the church, which is Christ. The husband receives his authority from Christ. He is a steward of Christ, and he stands in for Christ. If he behaves in such a way as you have to obey either him or Christ, who's the higher authority? Right? Obviously, Jesus the Christ is the higher authority. And so you don't go like, I don't, like, you don't submit to anarchy and go like, I don't have to do this. You go, sweetheart, I, like, I, I want to revere your authority, but listen, I feel like you're putting me in a position where I either obey God or you, and you know where my loyalties lie. Please do not put me in this position, because I'm going to choose Jesus. Right? Now, it's very easy if you're a woman to fault find with your husband's stupidity, because sometimes he's going to just be an idiot, but he's not actually subverting loyalty to Christ, right? And that's something you just got to work out, right? That's—go back to point two. What, the most important thing is your spiritual maturity. The more spiritually mature you are, the easier this is all to work out. The more immature you are, the more difficult all these rules seem. Do you understand? And the last thing for husbands is 
Like, you can do that. You can do this. You can spiritually lead your wife. Because some of you are like, you know, my wife goes to more Bible studies than me, and my wife's been going to church longer, my wife knows her Bible, and like, I don't even like to read Bibles, and like, I just don't, I don't see how, like, I can do that. And the answer is, yes, you can. Right? You don't like to read very much? You just, it's your temperament? Well, then get a mentor and let a real human being pour directly into your spiritual life. Come to church and listen attentively. Like, there's ways to do it. And the thing is, is that there's a level in which your wife really would love for you to do that. Listen, listen, for every one wife that's in my counseling office that says, my husband is just like, he's just a browbeater. He's just like, he uses authority in a way that's really unhelpful. There are at least five wives who say, I wish the guy would lead. I just wish that he would lead, that he would just step up. He just doesn't step up. And the guy's like, well, I don't think you want me to. And she's like, I desperately want you to. So if you're a wife and that's how you feel, you need to explicitly tell your husband that basically like every day until he starts doing it. Not negatively, like, why don't you? But like, I want you to. Because he doesn't think you're going to follow him. Right? And if you're a guy, like, you can do this. You can grow a lot faster than you think. You're going to come at spiritual life from a very different perspective than her. So you don't have to grow that much for her to find what you are learning and growing and useful. And ultimately, she knows that her children are not likely to follow Christ without your leadership. They'll think religion's a woman thing. And they desperately want you to take that leadership and authority and direction because they want their children to share their faith. Right? Listen, I wish I could have spent an hour just doing the apologetics of like how the culture feels and how this— like you can't do everything in one talk, okay? What I wanted to do was for us to say, look— Let's start with what this text really says, what the Bible really teaches, and what we're really called to believe. From that, we need to then think about how we're going to work it out exactly. That's what your small group discussions are partly for, right? And how would we defend this to a culture that feels like it's horrific and primitive and terrible and the worst of everything, right? I can't do everything at one, in one sermon, right? Um, there are some podcasts on complementarianism in the podcast where I talk about a lot of this stuff in relationship to the culture, so you might want to listen to those if you're interested in that. But here's where we need to end for now. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we get ready to take communion, um, I know that this is difficult and there are ways in which it's only the death and resurrection of Christ that could make people bold enough to seek to try to live this way. And I know that our, our culture has erased <clears throat> all of the common humanity understanding of why this is a good way to order our lives together. And so a lot of us come to this with seeing a command and having no idea why. And so, Lord, I pray that you would raise up in us faith and trust and a desire to grow in godliness so that our embodiment of these mysteries would be so profoundly beautiful to ourselves and our children and to our neighbors and our fellow believers and to the world that they would just be astonished at how a system they think is crazy works so amazingly well for a people willing to trust you. We pray that you would take this ordinance and um, that you called us to as a place and time of recognition to bring ourselves back into a state of humility and how we live towards each other and how we accept you absolutely as our one and perfect head. In Jesus' name.